The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Relationships, and Global Discipleship Initiative hosted a track called Turning Your Church into a Disciple Making Mission. Greg Ogden facilitated this track for their team, and he has provided a quick one page summary of how their organization advises people to start what they call micro discipleship groups. They spell it all out in just one page, and that one-page PDF is available for download through discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. Now here's today's track session from Global Discipleship Initiative. Uh, we've been focused in on um, what we call microgroups as a, as a means to making disciples. That's the tool, that's the context, that's the environment. We're going to spend most of our time here looking at the transformative environment that converges uh, on the microgroup to make it the, the, the kind of context that really provides the flourishing opportunity for people. But I want to show you a little video clip here as we begin. Uh, some of you may remember the movie Pay It Forward. Uh, it came out many years ago, 1997, I believe, was the, the year of that. And uh, a name that has sort of fallen on ill recruit in recent times, Kevin Spacey, uh, was the you know, seventh grade teacher. And each year he would challenge his seventh grade class to do something to change the world. And uh, Trevor McKinney, played by Haley Joel Osment, uh, is the starry-eyed dreamer who, with a big heart, and he takes the assignment seriously. And it will be pretty, pretty obvious why I'm showing this film clip uh, once you see it all the way through. Pay it forward, right? So, so we're, we're talking about one person inviting three others to join you on the journey of discipleship, uh, and so that those three people then are Im, uh, impacted in such a way that they are, will multiply uh, themselves into others. So the whole idea of paying it forward reproduction uh, is the, the key element here. So let's take a look at uh, the transformational elements uh, of a microgroup, and what I call the hot house of the Holy Spirit. So uh, we're on. Page, where are we on our, our notes? Page five on your on your outline, uh, towards the bottom of the page there. And we're looking at the transformational context. What converges in this microgroup to create the transformational setting? Yeah. Okay. All right. Need outlines? Okay. Very good. All right. So here we are. You can see this written on on the page there, middle of page five. When we open our hearts in transparent trust to each other around the truth of God's word and a spirit of mutual accountability or life change accountability, we are in the, or, uh, engaged in our God-given mission. We are in the Holy Spirit's hothouse of transformation. Uh, I like that image of hothouse. What's a hothouse or a greenhouse? Uh, it's, it's the, the environment that is created uh, to multiply, multiply growth, to make growth more uh, effective. So all the conditions come together so that uh, you can grow something more rapidly and, and uh, more quickly. So the hothouse, that image came to me um, when my wife and I had a chance to take a trip to uh, Alaska. Uh, I think it was the year 2000. Uh, many of us traveled to Alaska? Take those cruises up to Alaska and all that kind of stuff. Somehow get there, you know, whatever, whatever you did to get to Alaska. So in the, sum, the summertime months, obviously the sun is out uh, almost 24-7. Uh, and so you get a little strip of darkness about midnight in July. And, and uh, then the rest of the time, it's all out. And then you hear these stories of amazing growth of how things rapidly grew because the conditions were just right for accelerated growth. So you get, hear stories of 1,000-pound pumpkins and zucchini squash that's the length of baseball ball bats, you know, uh, daffodils the size, the size of dinner plates. And so this, I thought, hmm, that's, a, that's my experience with, with a microgroup. The conditions seem to be just right to release the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives, to accelerate growth, and to provide the, uh, the possibility for multiplication uh, to take place. Show you a, a picture here. You might want to catch the lights again just for a second here, Ralph, so you can see this picture a little bit better. Um, this is a picture of a Texas prison. Um, so you might notice this centerpiece here, uh, the Hot House of the Holy Spirit. So this is Maximum Security Prison in Kennedy, Texas, the John B. Connolly Maximum Security Prison. And uh, I got this, this photo a few years back, actually about six months before my retirement at the end of 2011. And the volunteer chaplain had taken my book, Transforming Discipleship, took this phrase out of the book, 
and they turned it into the centerpiece of a faith-based unit in this Texas prison. And so, hot house of the Holy Spirit, when we open our hearts and transparent trust to each other around the truth of God's word, the spirit of life change accountability, we are in the Holy Spirit's hot house of transformation. So this big mural. And these 48 men are gathered around this mural because it's a faith-based unit, 24 cells, and they are in this unit because they want to be disciples of Jesus. Now, this is a maximum security prison. Some of these guys will never leave prison. Um, they will die uh, in prison. They have sentences of 50 years to life. Um, so obviously they've done some things that are fairly heinous, but at the same time they want to change their lives and turn it around. So uh, you can flip those lights, lights back on again. Um, so I went to, to visit this prison in September of 2012. The chaplain invited me to come down. Uh, I had never been in a prison before. I had visited people at prison in the visiting areas, but never inside a prison. And frankly, anytime people described prison ministry and said that's what they were called to, my internal response was this. God bless you for doing that. <laughs> and my hands were like this. I, no way I'm going to be involved in prison ministry. Could not see that I would, that would be effective at it. How would I relate to these men, uh, et cetera. So I went, and uh, we had some gatherings. Uh, he, the first day, uh, Craig brought in four different groups. They've been using my discipleship materials there. That's why I, I came. He had a three-year program, used some different materials for each one of the years. And then the second day, I met with these guys uh, from the faith-based unit. And we sat around in a, in a circle, and we exchanged some things, and they were sharing with me what they were learning and developing from uh, the, the program they were involved with and the materials. And then at the end of that session, Rocky says to me in front of the 48 men, he says, we are the forgotten people. Don't forget us. It's one of those, you've had them, stabs in the heart. And like, okay, I think the Lord is saying something to me here. Came back about three months later, uh, did some more teaching, interaction with them, saw the Holy Spirit doing the same kind of connection, me with them and them with me. And I thought, well, maybe there's a call here. I don't have to come from California to Texas to go to a prison. <laughs> I think there's actually prisons in California. <laughs> Lo and behold. Uh, so there's one about 45 minutes drive from me. I called the chaplain there. I said, uh, I want to volunteer. What can you use me for? And uh, so this was June of 2013. He says, I need somebody to cover the Protestant services on Wednesday morning. Can you come? Uh, he initially asked me if I could preach on Sunday. I said, yeah, I'm not really that interested in preaching on Sunday. I want to get to know the men. I can walk into a chapel service, preach, and walk out again and know nobody. That's not going to be satisfying for me. I want to get engaged in their lives and know, know who they are and develop some discipleship process there. So that's been a very meaningful point, uh, part of my life. Uh, so when I'm home every Wednesday, that's where I am. It's, it's Soledad Prison. I got this letter uh, from another prison, and they so wonderfully described the discipleship process that I, I want you to hear it and be inspired by it. Because uh, I certainly was by this. So uh, it goes like this. Dear Mr. Ogden, this letter feels long overdue. My name is etc. Uh, and I'm writing on behalf of the discipleship group from Jefferson City Correctional Center in Jefferson City, Missouri. You may remember that you donated some of your discipleship essentials books to us several years ago. I wanted to write to encourage you. God has used your words to make a great impact here among the brothers in chains. A quick rundown of who we are and how this group got started. We are a level five maximum security prison. Many of us have life sentences. Some of us will never leave these fences. It's a great temptation to believe that as society has deemed us unfit to live among them, God has given up on us as well. The lies of the enemy whispers, the lies the enemy whispers in our ears come in the form of doubt, guilt, shame, and a lot of uselessness. Quote, God can never use someone like you. Quote, you are disqualified. And even, quote, God would never love someone like you. Thankfully, we believe the Bible is true and the gospel is for us. Grace is amazing precisely because it saves wretches like us. Out of the ashes of our sin and addictions, God has brought forth the beauty of a community of broken men desperate for a savior. 
also believing that the Great Commission is for us, we knew that we carried a responsibility to make disciples, Christ-centered, reproducing disciples. And here's the challenge. So several years ago, about 10 of us gathered together and came up with a strategy for reaching the men around us for Christ. Each one of us would find two men who were saved, hungry, and untaught, and we would take a year of our lives and pour into them. Of course, here's where you came in. Your curriculum and generosity to provide us with books gave us a foundation to get started. I wish I could tell you that a couple of years later, every convict in this prison was walking with the Lord. Of course, that is not the case. But this month, we have started our fourth generation of discipleship. Wow. Um, Every man went to the, through the program and then was challenged to find two other faithful men to pass the baton of discipleship to. Where's our baton? <laughs> right here. Uh, this is what we use in our, our ministry is this, this baton. As somebody completes the process, we give them a baton publicly and have them carry on. So, um, so uh, to see multiplication in action has been a blessing. We are growing. And here's my favorite line in the letter. God is becoming famous here. <laughs> we, we have faced unique challenges. Uh, how do you disciple someone who can barely read? How do we overcome racial tension? How do you teach when you didn't even have, a fin have finished junior high school? We are not free to, to meet for Bible studies wherever we want. We can't rally at the local Starbucks for one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Yet God has been so faithful and the fruit is falling off the vines. More than 100 men have been discipled. They're going out and reproducing themselves at other prisons in Missouri and housing units here. Our one prison guard was doing room searches and came across your book. Inspired as we were, he went home, bought the book, and started his own group. <laughs> uh, uh, one church heard about what we were doing uh, and based their college ministry on this plan. We had a Buddhist give his life to the Lord and join our group. What a joy it has been to see him grow, share the gospel, and study the word. We have lifelong criminals with terribly violent pasts, teaching others how to live faithfully. Rapists are speaking about how to remain sexually pure with their guys. Murderers are dying to themselves, taking up their crosses and following Jesus. Drug users are becoming addicted to Christ. We feel like we have an Acts 2 church here. We meet every Wednesday night for worship, prayer, a short message, and accountability time with our groups. We then meet once or twice a week with other groups for discipleship, Bible study, and life-on-life -life ministry. And then he quotes 1 Thessalonians 2.8, Having so fond an affection for you, we were to, pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. It's a cool thing happening here, he writes. We just wanted you to thank you for being obedient to the call of God has placed on your life. Like I said, your faithfulness is making a great impact here in prison. And also, if you ever wanted to come and see us, we would be thrilled. Of course, we can't pay you unless you have started accepting gratuities of ramen noodle soups and cigarettes. <laughs> and we'd be so honored to have you come and speak to our group, etc. I have not had that, that opportunity. And, uh, but I, I just thought that was such a wonderful, inspiring picture of what's happening. And that's not just happening in the Missouri prison. It's happening in lots of prisons. Uh, I certainly see that occurring in the one that I have the chance to, to be a part of. So I wanted just to, you to hear that. So let's take a look at some of the what I call climactic conditions uh, that converge on the microgroup to make for the life change. And the first one, and probably the most important one, is transparent trust. Uh, the reason why we keep the groups small as they are is so that uh, we can develop this openness and trusting relationship. Uh, we can become uh, open books to each other in a sense uh, because we believe that in that setting, that's where the truth of God's word actually then can be implanted in your spirit. So one of the ways to make this point is through some sarcasm. Uh, so well, I've got this little video uh, called the intentionally shallow small group and uh, so let's make this point uh, in terms of the opposite way and just have a little chuckle uh, here as we look at this. All right, a little uh, moment of humor. We don't have to discuss that a whole lot. So, so. all right. Unpack it. That's right. Let's unpack that. Okay, so what we're trying to see occur, obviously, in the context of these smaller units, the reason why we keep them as small as they are, is trying to develop a, a trustworthy atmosphere. Uh, I find that word trustworthy very interesting. 
you know, we have vocabulary that captures uh, so well what we're trying to do. Worthy of trust. What makes, uh, so what, what creates trust? What creates a worthiness of, of trust uh, in our, in these groups? What would uh, bring that about? How, how do you treat, how do you create trust? What, and what, is, what does trust look like? Confidentiality, okay, so you want to make sure that what is shared in the group stays in the group. Uh, what happens if it doesn't? What's the consequences? If you share something that is rather um, meaningful in your own life, what's the, what will happen that slips out? Sharing stops. Sharing stops. You just put an end to it. I've seen, I've seen that happen um, where something is shared beyond the group. Um, so oftentimes we cover Christian gossip through prayer, right? I just want you to pray about, you know, somebody's particular issue. Okay, what what else? What's what does trust look like? Following through. Following through. Okay. Commitment to something that you're following through with, uh, so that you become trustworthy. God is trustworthy because He follows through. He does what He promises to do. Yeah. Okay. So a few thoughts about that. Uh, trust keeps confidence, as you've already mentioned that. Uh, trust is full of grace. Um, what does that mean? Trust is full of grace. Uh, the, yeah, in the previous session, I, I mentioned a woman who's talked about the fact that she didn't want comparison or judgment in her group. Um, when we're full of grace, there's nothing that we could share with each other that uh, we are shocked by. We're unshockable. Trust us. And grace is, is unshockable in our lives. So um, certainly I've had things shared in our group, whether it's somebody struggling with pornography, um, with uh, other areas of their life that uh, would be quite difficult. Uh, we are accepting um, of each other, and we're extending the heart of God. Uh, trust listens. Uh, there's probably no better expression of, of love than people who listen to us. How many of us have listeners in our life? <laughs> that, uh, and what is, what is a listener? Somebody who doesn't just stop at the kind of the superficial thing that you're sharing, but wants to know more. They, what's that? You have their eyes. You have their eyes. That's, a, that's a, so they're focused. Yeah. They're asking follow-up questions. Go ahead. Yeah. They're asking questions. Asking questions. They want to they know more. They're staying with you uh, instead of diverting off into their own story. And you know, it's so easy when somebody is sharing something with us to say, oh, I, that connects with me on such and such. And I begin to tell my story. And before you know it, you're, you're away from that person's particular issues. We'll talk a little bit more about um, the art of listening in the context of our groups, uh, especially listening to people's hearts call and commitments and you know, the things that God has put on their heart to do. Who's listening to that uh, in people's lives? Uh, it's rooted in, in humility. That, uh, it says uh, all of us are capable of certain misdeeds or acts, thoughts, uh, none of us is, is uh, in the position to judge somebody else because we all have the capacity for sin. Uh, and uh, my issue may be different from your issue, but um, they are of, of equal value. So um, levels of communication. Uh, what are we trying to get to in the kinds of things that we share within these groups? So one person has put together this scheme like this. We're trying to get down here to level five communication, but we start here. Uh, cliche conversation, uh, chit chat. So Sunday morning patio stuff. You know, that's the, hey, how's, how'd you think about the game last night? That kind of thing. Another uh, level two is sharing information and facts. So you're, you're getting to, uh, we were talking at uh, breakfast this morning. I was sh sharing about a book that I had read, um, and uh, this very interesting book, and I wanted to give it some context on it because it was meaningful to me. But it wasn't a deep sharing on my part. It was just something that impacted my life through, through a book. Sharing of ideas and opinions. Oh, okay, now we're getting into riskier territory, especially if you're getting into what? Politics, <laughs> um, perspectives along those lines. Um, what did we say? You know. Don't talk about religion and politics. But we want to share, start sharing our convictions, opinions. Um, that's getting to riskier territory. Uh, sharing of feelings, whether it's positive or negative feelings. Uh, so we get down to the, the, that deeper level. 
Um, why is that more tender when you get to the level of, of feelings? Well, one, you may not be heard. You're, you're sharing something that's deeply meaningful to you and it gets passed over. Um, that can happen a lot in terms of our kind of communication with each other. But what we're looking for is this kind of peak communication, openness, transparency, uh, self-disclosure. And so we want to take a look uh, at that. So you might you know, ask the question, well, what's, why is that necessary? Uh, the, one of the theses that I propose is this. Um, this principle, the extent to which we are willing to reveal to others those areas of our life that needs God's transforming touch is the extent to which we are inviting the Holy Spirit to make us new. So what I'm saying is that on, uh, on a vertical level here, our relationship with God, we are as serious about that relationship with God as we are about our willingness to engage each other on a horizontal level. If I'm willing to open my life up uh, to somebody else, especially those areas of tenderness or areas where I know I still have some brokenness that I need to deal with, a sin in my life, uh, if I'm willing to get to that point, then I'm really serious about my desire to have God be the kind of central person in my life, Jesus to be the central person uh, in my life. Well, you might say, well, why is that necessary? Why do I have to share with somebody else? My life's an open book before God. God knows everything there is to know about me. Uh, there's nothing I can hide uh, from the Lord. So as long as I'm being honest with the Lord, <laughs> hmm, what's the scripture say about the state of the human heart? Uh, that it's pretty clear that uh, our, our hearts are ones that uh, are broken before him uh, and uh, that we are struggling to be all that we tend to be. I'm trying to find my scripture reference here. Um, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? Uh, I like this note that the IRS received some time ago. Uh, IRS received the following note. Gentlemen, enclosed you will find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year and have not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I will send you the rest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I doubt if that note was ever sent. Um, certainly not with any return address on it. But, um, so, but the, the whole idea that we can um, kind of be slippery when it comes to our uh, honesty uh, about ours. So we need the, the accountability of each other, the willingness to, to share and get and trusting and, and extend the heart and grace of God uh, to each other. So what are some of the levels uh, that we go through to get to the ultimate level of mutual confession? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I compare this to kind of getting into deeper and deeper waters, uh, somewhat like the, the video that we, we talked about. So when you're starting a group and you're getting together for the first time, there's usually some level of anxiety. Uh, especially if you don't know each other, so you have a group of four people that are coming together. Uh, what are some of the questions that are going to be on people's minds as they approach that first session with each other? What do you think they're thinking about? Can I trust these people? Um, if I'm going to make commit myself to a journey with them for a period of time, do I want to spend the time with these people? Are they going to be enjoyable to be around? I'm making a big commitment here. Um, that kind of thing. And so you're starting at, at the kind of level of affirmation, uh, level of uh, being each other's cheerleaders uh, in this. So uh, I talk about you start by just kind of sticking your toe in the water. And uh, as you stick your toe in the water, you're saying, well, is this just going to be a safe place? Um, what's it going to be like here? Uh, Gordon McDonald in his book, Restoring Your Spiritual Passion, says one solid and loving rebuke is worth 100 affirmations. And I like to turn that around. We need about 100 affirmations for one solid and loving rebuke. <laughs> and so do we live in the context of affirmation? Do we live in, are these people that are going to be my cheerleaders? Are they going to root me on? Are they going to be the people that stand with me uh, in difficult times? It came uh, to my attention one Sunday morning uh, of how much we need encouragement. I was, uh, it was at a time in my life when I wasn't a pastor, I was uh, attendee at a church because I was on the doctor of ministry faculty at, at Fuller Seminary. <clears throat> and uh, so I was dashed into worship, into the restroom before worship on Sunday morning, was washing my hands and then our, one of our worship leaders was standing next to me, you know, getting ready to go, go lead worship. 
And I thought, gee, I hardly ever have a chance to say thank you to Chris for the way he leads us in worship and points us to the Lord. So I said, God has really gifted you uh, to really enhance our worship. I don't know how you do it, but when you're up on stage, you focus our attention on the Lord in such a way that you lose yourself. And just thank you for the gift that you are to this congregation. And he said to me, oh, thank you so much. I hardly ever hear that. And it was like, gosh, we don't take the time um, just to point out the things of blessing in, in people's lives that they are, are to us. So that whole idea that we can stand with each other. Uh, next thing uh, we, is that we have an opportunity to walk with each other during difficult times. Uh, one of the wonderful things about uh, the size of this small group and the length of time that you are together, year uh, to year and a quarter, year and a half, is there's going to be some quality of life threatening things to happen to any one of us in our groups. Ralph, come on up and tell us about uh, Ed's experience. This particular quad met at a Mexican restaurant. It was a, wasn't much bigger than this room. wasn't that big and a lot of tables and a lot of noise. And so we, we found it fine. We, we were probably the loudest group there. Uh, but on this particular day when we showed up, Ed uh, was kind of quiet. And then after a little bit, he said, I don't think Pam and I are going to make it. And we stopped. <laughs> we put the books away. And uh, Mark, who's in the group, real estate guy, uh, very strong believer said, uh, that's not going to happen. You're not moving out. You're not finding an apartment. We'll walk you through this. And for the next four weeks, probably, uh, we, we focused on Ed and helping Ed know what to do and how to navigate through and how to pull, this, pull himself out of the mess he, that they were in. On the last day, I was in Camarillo as the pastor of the church there. The day I was retiring, we did the big... You know, thank you, Ralph and Jackie, you know, for all the kind of stuff. And everybody was there. And right on the front row were Ed and Pam. And Ed stood up and he said, you know, Pam and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Ralph's quad. Um, sometimes there will be in your quad issues that will derail the text. <laughs> and you'll need to spend time working through. And that's part of life. It's not about text, it's not about information, it's about the transformation of our hearts becoming more Christ-like. And each of us are on our own journey, and you're sharing journey together. And you're there long enough in these kinds of groups, a year or more, uh, you're gonna run into those. That's gonna happen. And you need to be prepared for it and let God use it. And those other three uh, other guys in the group uh, salvaged Ed's marriage for him and uh, we all rejoice with him and I got my text from Ed this morning I get a text from Ed every morning <laughs> and he just says done done and what that means is I've done my homework I've done my memorization this morning I've done my Bible study I'm done today <laughs> it's just a check-in it's just an accountability that he insists on continuing to do every day that's great wonderful let me tell you about Grant. Uh, Grant is a personal injury attorney. Uh, a group of four of us met in his law office on Thursday morning at 6.30. We met around his conference table. And during the entire time of our there, time there in his little mom and pop law, law office, uh, he was always on the verge of going under. Um, I don't know if you know anything about personal injury attorneys in terms of the way they are financed, but they'll take a case and you only get paid if you win. Uh, so you can invest literally thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in a case. And if you lose that case, you just lose the money. Uh, there's no, no resource coming in. So he had banked on a very major case coming through. And uh, so, like I said, entire time we were there, he was, he was on the verge of going under. He would say, say to us, my old friend fear is back again. <laughs> and we knew exactly what that meant in terms of the demise of his business that he had invested in. Well, while we were together, he lost a major case that he had invested in. And he wrote this note to me uh, during that time. We have endured a great hardship hoping for a better future. Now it seems that that future will not come to pass. I must face the reality that the career I have worked for for 18 years is not working. 
I am 45 years old, must rely on my mom for handouts. I have bills to pay, a car that hardly runs, and a crushed spirit. If dreams sustain a man, I'm in real trouble. That was going on during our quad, during that time to pray for. One, one Thursday morning we showed up, and uh, Grant said, I, I got payday tomorrow. I can't cover the expenses. I don't know where the money's going to come from. Uh, his wife was actually their, kind of their financial manager of, of the office. And so we obviously prayed for him that morning, uh, and Friday rolls around, and you know he's going to have to tell his staff, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. I can't pay your salaries. And lo and behold, that Friday, a check arrives in the mail from a client that he had long since given up on ever getting paid by that client, and it was adequate enough to sustain that law firm for another period of time. So I'm just saying these are the kinds of things that you walk with each other uh, during that time. I'm, I'm glad to say to you that Grant is still in business <laughs> and thriving uh, and uh, has just been a, a stalwart in terms of his own faithfulness uh, to the Lord, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of his fears. But you, you get to carry people uh, through their fears. So I know, and all the different groups I've been involved in, I've been in struggling with men struggling with long-term unemployment. The first group that I had at my church in Chicago, a man who had been unemployed for two years, former CEO type of guy who was wanting to get back into that. I was unemployed almost during the entire time of our, our group together. Shaky marriages, runaway children, imminent home for, home to close closures, uh, battling with various kinds of addictions, etc. cetera. Uh, but these are the kinds of things that you... That happened, not always happened that way, but that you have a chance to, to carry each other uh, during that time. So walking with each other during difficult times, I had my own cancer battle back in 2008, so I was delighted to be a part of a group that prayed me through that particular time. Uh, so prostate cancer surgery and radiation treatment uh, that occurred, to get those phone messages from those guys that said, Praying with you the day of the surgery, you know, standing with you, you, you're not alone, you know, all that kind of stuff is just a, a joy to have that as a part of one's life. So walking with each other during difficult times, being reflective listeners. Um, I mentioned earlier, do we have listeners in our life? Do we have people that are deeply uh, committed to us? We had a man by the name of Dave in one of my groups. Dave is a, in the insurance business for 32 years. Dave was a model believer as far as I'm concerned. I always wanted my life to be like his life in terms of the, the kind of reputation uh, that he had in, in terms of a follower of Christ. And he was going through his halftime experience. We all know what halftime is, right? Going from, you know, from success to significance and asking himself, well, is being successful in, in insurance business what my life is all about? And he started to get this uh, sense of call to leave the insurance business, to leave that safety net that he had, to go off into a, a business, uh, actually a business called C12, which was a way to support Christian CEOs in their, their business world. Uh, but it was a for-profit business that he would have to establish and create a whole new stream of income. And so during the time of our 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 quad, he was asking the question, is this God's call for me? Should I do this? And we simply listened and asked questions and you know, kept standing with him to help him clarify that. He eventually left his insurance business, went off with C12. He's been doing that for probably eight or nine years now in terms of that, that whole business. But that was a really risky thing uh, for him to do. But the chance to hear the call of God in people's lives, to clarify that, um, that's part of what you're, you're listening for. And then, of course, the deep end of the pool uh, is the confession of our sin, uh, besetting sins that trip us up, uh, need to get down to the hidden things of our life. Uh, when you get to the place where you were really trusting and confident uh, with each other, uh, this is where you get. Uh, Chuck was in the same small group that Grant was in. Uh, Chuck, uh, about six months into our group, said, got a secret. I've got to share this with you. I haven't told my wife yet. I'm going to tell you guys first, <laughs> and I hope you will give me the courage to tell my wife. I've mismanaged my finances. I've run up $50,000 of charges on a credit card. This is not the first time I've done this. 
I think it's going to put my marriage in jeopardy when my wife finds out about this. I've been sending the bills to my place of business so that she would know, not know about it. But I got to tell her. And he did. Uh, I got pulled in as a pastor to be involved in that explosion that occurred um, by Sally when that, when that took place. But uh, I can tell you today they're still married. They've made it through, and uh, they were able to restructure the, the finances to make that happen. So getting sometimes this stuff that is hidden in our own spirits out um, that releases us from the power of the things that we hide within ourselves. We know that we all perhaps have secrets that we, we keep, and the more that they stay buried inside of us, the more they control us. And so these groups have an opportunity then to create that place of mutual confession. Uh, I think we have the Bonhoeffer quote uh, in your outlines, I believe. But uh, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. I think Bill Hull referred to this last night. Sin demands to have a man by himself. You quoted that line. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. So I don't know if you've been in that setting yourself where you've had a chance to, to share those and even, you know, those of us who believe in the priesthood of all believers, then we have the opportunity to offer forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, I had a, a, a man in one of my quads that was questionable whether I should have invited him in. He sort of invited himself in, so that's a whole other story. But uh, he um, was having a very stormy relationship with his wife. And we came to believe that he was the problem. And uh, it wasn't her, ultimately, that was the most of the problem. It was he, he was extremely volatile. Anytime we describe what was going on in the home, he was just so animated. And we say, do you see how you're coming across? Do you, do you see how you're presenting yourself? You know, if your wife is seeing this, you know, how do you think she'd be reacting to your animated anger, you know, at her? And he would not accept our putting the mirror back in front of him. Uh, and eventually left the group uh, as a result of that. So that, that, that's the story that comes to my mind immediately in terms of yeah. with that yeah. taking place. Jesus had Judas. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, we're, yeah, we, have, we do share some tender su success stories in a sense, but you're right. I mean, we're dealing with real human beings. Um, our own, our, ourselves are real human beings, you know, in terms of that. So it's uh, that issue. Yeah, and uh, if you look at the covenant that we use in Discipleship Essentials, um, we sort of intimate at the, at the beginning that uh, as you were working through the covenant, one of the things that uh, you're going to share with each other is, I offer myself fully to the Lord with the anticipation <laughs> I'm entering a time of accelerated transformation during this discipleship period. And then number four, contribute to a climate of honesty, trust, and personal vulnerability and a spirit of mutual love building. Uh, in other words, there's going to be some tender times here and some risky times for all of us, you know, in terms of the things that we will we'll share with each other. So yeah, you probably don't know exactly what you're entering into when, when you're engaging this relationship, but we try to at least hint uh, that that's, that's where we're moving. Uh, honesty, trust, and personal vulnerability will be a, a very part, much a part of this. Yeah, you're selective uh, with that uh, in the sense that, uh, well, for example, I have struggled with pornography in my life, and I would share that with, with the guys in, in the group. I've shared uh, deeply about the, a life of some anxiety and fear that had riddled my life for, for a period of time. But when it came to some issues within the church itself, uh, oftentimes I would kind of steer clear of that because I felt burdening them with certain things was not not helpful for them to have knowledge about some internal conflicts or things like that that was were taking place. Well, actually, um, fortunately, I had a fairly good relationship with Sally to begin with, so she she was not a stranger to me. And we, my wife and I had spent a lot of time at their home. Uh, to, to that so to step into that was it was a fairly 
a natural thing for me to participate in that kind of medium uh, there. Um, you know, I, I, I kept saying to, to Chuck, you are so lucky to be married to Sally, <laughs> you know, uh, that she would go down this road. This was the fourth time he had messed up financially. So this was, uh, uh, and she was the kind of the financial keeper in the, in the home. So stepped in there and um, she fairly quickly turned the corner and took control of it. But she also delegated to us some responsibility to hold Chuck's feet to the fire as well in terms of his remaining true on the financial side of things, which he continued to do. And as far as I know, there's been no repeating of that that issue. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I've ever actually used those levels as a part of the, uh, actually a good idea. Thank you. That was a good, that's a good suggestion. A good suggestion. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, to actually kind of be able to peg what we're moving towards, that would be a helpful thing to, to use for them, but I've never used it in that, in that setting. Well, you start, because to go back to your first two-part question, uh, length, of, uh, length of these groups um, is, you know, we always say it's relationship first, program second. So the whole idea is that they have no specific time frame. So, uh, we say the average length of time it takes to get through a lesson is maybe two sessions per lesson. You're not going to get through it at one, uh, one at a time. Uh, a year to a year and a half is the general time frame. Uh, it very much depends upon what's going on. Ralph has already said you had Ed and his group and they set aside their, the content for a period of time because they were dealing with that preserving a marriage uh, during that time. So that obviously extends, extends the length. Um, one of the guys I had in, in my group, uh, a guy by the name of Mick, um, was a, came out of Roman Catholic background, been a Roman Catholic all his life, came to a Protestant church for the first time at age 65. Um, in fact, the, the day he walked into the new members class, he handed me a notebook, which is a 96-page single-spaced document that he had written up comparing Protestant church to Roman Catholic church. And uh, I said, well, this guy's serious. He said, I, I had to sit, sort this out if I was going to become a member of a Protestant church after 65 years of being a Roman Catholic. And so I thought, well, this guy's, this guy's serious, you know, about the, the whole thing. Well, he had lots of questions during our time. And so we ran down a lot of rabbit trails. So I think that was an 18 to 20 months group uh, because of that. So it all is about the internal dynamic of what's going on in the group. You can't really program it uh, for, for a length of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that was the second part yeah, of the question. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good point. Um, in terms of staying focused, because if, if you're prepared like two or three weeks in advance, you don't get to that portion of the, the material, you're saying you've got a gap, time gap here right. uh, from that. I, you know, just in terms of asking people to go back and review uh, their material and make sure you keep it fresh and present. Um, so, you know you're going to have to share your memory verse, you know, make sure you got that tucked away and practice that. And we hold people accountable to recite it right in front of each other uh, so that they're holding that together. So I think just to say, all right, we didn't get this that far, but make sure, you know, next week we'll come back to this. Uh, we, we look at these, these, the um, curriculum as the tracks to run on. So uh, you get back on your tracks. Sometimes you get off the tracks uh, to go off to some of the things that you need to pay attention to in the group. And then, but you got something to come back to. Uh, so, well. uh, second half of the question there was how do you steer that conversation sometimes to this deeper level? And I think part of that answer might be in your as the leader. That's another place where you take the lead and yeah. you, you model it. You you know when you share something in right. in your life that gives them permission to share from their life. I had a guy in my group who's. FCA leader, and he dealt been in lots of uh, guys groups and stuff like that. And the, f the first day of our group, he says, "Okay, guys, what's your favorite sin?" <laughs> That's the way he started, man. And we went deep right away. <laughs> so, you know, you, you open the, you have to give permission to go there. And once you do, they, you know, it, it opens up. People start getting real and honest and transparent. And that's where change takes place. Good. Thank you. Yeah, and to add to the point, too, was that the, the curriculum uh, has a lot of personal application questions. So you're taking and moving from scripture into life uh, constantly, back and forth. So it's not just, let's just understand what this is saying on a conceptual level. You're understanding what this is saying to me. 
uh, in my own life. So, okay, one uh, final thing here on this particular segment. You can't read this, but I will read it to you as a handwritten note that I received one of, from one of our members of our board of trustees. And this kind of finishes off the whole uh, sharing and transparency segment here. But uh, as my wife and I were moving towards retirement uh, at the end of 2011, uh, the church did a wonderful thing for us. They, they forgave basically a loan that they had given us to help us finance our house, which was a considerable amount of money uh, that the church did as I was moving towards retirement. And of course, I asked for permission to come to the Board of Trustees to thank them for what they had done. And I was certainly in some tears um, with the generosity of this gift that they had granted to my wife and I. Well, the next couple of days, I got a note back from one of the members of the Board of Trustees, and it went like this. Greg, your heartfelt remarks to the board last night prompted me to reflect on your significant impact on my life, something I have not shared with you. Gathering around Discipleship Essentials was a turning point for me, transformational in impact, life-changing. Awakening God's call led me to confront my drinking problem, save my marriage, renew numerous broken relationships. Thank you for being true to God's call on your life. It has changed mine. Blessings in them, the name given there. So this is the kind of impact that uh, get a privilege of, of seeing take place. He was actually in another group um, than, I, than I was leading, so that's the reason for him not having shared that with me. Okay, so let's, let's talk together. Um, why might this element of transparent trust uh, be so important for transformation? What is missing if this element is not present? So let me just ask you to share that with each other a little bit. I don't know if we've done much in this session in terms of talking with each other. Uh, we have in the other previous sessions uh, done that. But uh, so if you find a partner next to you, two or you know, pair up to you know, say hello to somebody next to you. you know. I got a quad going here again. Uh, thank you for instructing each other. That's great. We're going to move on now to the covenant and the importance of the covenant in the relationship uh, that you build in a quad. Uh, we start as you, if you've looked at the book, You'll notice that, you've noticed that on page 14, uh, and by the way, what I typically do when I invite somebody into my group is I, I give them the book and I said, read uh, uh, to page 14, and, and then we'll get together. <laughs> So I include that in my invitation to be a part of a group. I say read because uh, Greg does such a great job in describing what the group's all about in these first 14 pages. And it ends with the covenant. And that's what you ask them to sign. And so the first time I meet with my group, we read through those, four, those first 14 pages again and get to the covenant. We read that together. Everybody understands it. And we all sign it right there uh, and date it. So uh, if you haven't seen the covenant, let me just read quickly through it. And then we'll talk about it's in the hands of Oh, it's in the handout, so you got it right there. Okay. But you complete your assignments on a weekly basis, obviously. That's some, something that's going to be critical. You do that before you show up uh, for the appointment. Uh, now, uh, second one, you, we meet weekly uh, with our discipleship partners. Probably 90 minutes, typically, is what we look at there. Uh, we offer ourselves fully to the Lord in anticipation of being part of an accelerated uh, transformation there. And then number, uh, that was number three. Number four, we contribute to a climate of honesty, trust, personal vulnerability, and a spirit of mutual upbuilding. And then finally, uh, we give serious consideration to continuing the discipling chain by committing myself to invest in at least two others uh, for the year following the initial in the year following the initial completion of the discipleship essential. So we're going to continue it on. We're going to pay it forward. Um, why is a covenant important? Give me some feedback. Expectations. It establishes expectations. Everybody knows what we're what we're doing, and you've, you you're making that commitment to it. Everybody's at the same level there. We're all going in with the same expectations. What else? We have contracts in everything we do. Yeah, we have, important. yeah, we do. We have contracts and all all kinds of things. We expect people to follow through. We <laughs> we ask for contracts. Contracts are from other people to us. This is yes, it is. Yes, it is. And in a sense, before God too. So there's that element as well. We want to make it clear. There we go. There you go. Yeah. And and it will indicate that sometimes. If a guy's showing up to the group and he's not, he hasn't done his homework, he's not memorizing his verses, uh, that's indicating probably not that he's just not coming prepared, but there probably is a spiritual issue here that needs to be addressed. Yeah. 
You've thought that through, Joel. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Good. Good observations. Yeah. Because, like, like we're saying here, they don't know exactly what they're getting into, and so when I say I will consider, uh, I, I'll give serious consideration to continuing the discipleship training. They're not. You know, they may have a very vague idea of what this thing's all about, and to say I'm committing myself to, you know, teach this to somebody else or do it is a little is a little presumptive. Right. So it, it gives a little slip room there when we say can, I'll give sitters consideration to it. But we fully expect them to do that, and we encourage them to do that. And before they're done, in fact, I've I've started just recently making it part of my habit to ask them to start their quad before we're done with this one. In the last quarter of the material, I want them to get established and get going so that I'm there to help them through that start. If you don't, sometimes there's a gap. And that gap can get longer and longer, and it, and it loses momentum. Uh, so I would rather have them start their group before we're done with this one. So in the last you know, several weeks of my, my quad, I'm trying to get them to go ahead and launch. And I, I, I rarely have difficulty at this, at this point, but I, think, I, I do appreciate the fact that it's there because, it, like you say, it does put us on the same page. Everybody understands what we're out to accomplish uh, and how we're going to go about it. Do you have something? Well, I just want to add one of the things is this is there are five elements of the covenant that are stated here, but there's also an additional parenthetical comment. The above commitments are minimum standards of accountability which are received reviewed and renewed after eight, lessons 8 and 16, feel free to add any other elements to your covenant. So this was meant to just be kind of a basic one. Um, you might put a service element. We're going to go involved, be involved in service once a quarter uh, to do something together to go out. Uh, we're going to share the names of people in our network of relationships that don't know Christ, and we want to be interceding for each uh, these people you know, regularly and keep track of that. So. Things that you want to add to the covenant, feel free to add. This was only meant to be a bare bones uh, kind of beginning, but uh, you may have a particular focus that you would want to add elements to that covenant that you could agree to after lesson eight, lesson 16, and add other things to it. We always end our group meetings with a prayer time, and we'll share our prayer requests. And we we generally covenant together to, to pray for each other during the week, not just at the end of the uh, the, the meeting itself, but to pray for each other during the week uh, for these requests. One um, final thing we might want to do here is uh, with the covenant thing. How do you help the group process it so it becomes their own? What do you besides just reading it through and saying and nodding and saying, "Oh yes, I'll commit myself to it." How would you help that group embrace it uh, so that it's being owned by them rather than just acknowledging it? So one of the things I do for this, I just did it Tuesday because we started a new group, was walk through the covenant and I said, okay, I want you to articulate to each other what you just committed yourself to. And just to verbalize it um, so that they would externalize it and put their own words to it so that they translate that in that. So that's just one way to, to do that. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. The message you just heard was from the Global Discipleship Initiative track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download their free PDF that summarizes how they teach people to do micro-discipleship groups, which are made of three or four people. Download it at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.